So this morning, as you can see, we're going to be talking about Christian giving. There are probably some of you out there that are saying, I knew I should have taken vacation this week. <laughs> I knew I should have been gone some. <laughs> I mentioned uh, the topic to someone, and I will not mention who it was. And there was just this instant uh, reactive, ugh. <laughs> I, I think I can translate that into amen, but I, I don't know. This is not a topic that we necessarily like to talk about. As a matter of fact, as, as a pastor, and I can probably speak for another pastor in this room, this is, this is not a topic that we necessarily want to talk about either all the time. But this morning we are going to talk about church giving, and I believe that we are experiencing very fitting circumstances for a message on giving because it doesn't come at a time of need or concern. In other words, we're just talking about giving. There's no other reason to talk about it but just the fact that it's important. And we're going to look at several topics related to the church in the next few weeks. Um, next week, we're going to, our message will be on baptism because we are going to have a baptism. And so we're going to talk about some of those things. But I know that for some of us in this room, you're saying, you know what? I don't have a job yet. Uh, I can just check out. Well, there's some aspects of this that you can that you can still apply, and I want to encourage you to consider that. And that we may have some guests with us, and I, I understand that this might not be you know the message for you, but I hope that you'll glean some things from it. All right. But here's the thing: financially, the church is doing well. More is coming in than is going out, and we have completed a few projects recently. In our recent past, we've completed some relatively significant projects. But before going forward in our study, I want to face what I would consider to be some uncomfortable facts. There is a growing belief that churches are just in it for the people's money. And the pastor is often the one leading the effort. That is from a certain people's perspective. 39% of Americans think pastors are honest. But 69% say that pastors are unethical at least some of the time. Now, those are not good statistics okay some feel that church feel that churches and pastors are more about building their own earthly kingdom than building the kingdom of god and the problem is to a degree they're correct there are those in ministry primarily to enrich themselves we're warned about that they're called false teachers the size of the church and the amount of money really is irrelevant. Sometimes we look at the, a mega church, we like to call it, right? And say, yeah, boy, they're being enriched. Well, not all mega church pastors make mega bucks, okay? I mean, in other words, just because there's size doesn't mean that there's something wrong. And sometimes a false pastor isn't really concerned about making a bunch of money as much as he is just having a livelihood provided for him for all the wrong purposes, all right? And there are congregations who are happy to invest in the size and reputation of the church rather than fulfilling the mission of the church. It's just a reality. Now, we do need to stay on track because our subject is giving, not airing churches, but I just want that out there. I want to acknowledge that so that we understand that's where we're at, folks. It's a reality that we face. And as, as I said, unfortunately, there have been some things that have been, um, in some ways, rightfully so, published. 
that, that tell us that, you know, there are churches that are going the wrong direction in this way. But leadership and membership need to diligently check our attitudes and actions in relation to the stewardship of our collective resources. That is everyone's responsibility as a body of believers. And no matter what opinions, challenges, or agendas may exist outside or inside the church, we are responsible to be good stewards. So with that said, I wanted to give us an overview of tithes and offerings, and we're going to start our overview in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word tithe, it simply means tenth. Tithes and offerings were given to fulfill uh, their covenant, the children of Israel, their covenant with the Lord. Uh, that, that was their primary purpose. As they gave, it was to fill, fulfill the covenant that they had with him because he said, this is how I'm going to prescribe these different things. We're going to see some of them today. Again, this is a one-day message. This is not a series on giving. We're not taking a deep dive into things, but I think we're going to give you enough to just remind us of not only our responsibility, but really the, the, the joy that we can have in it. So as we do that, looking at the Old Testament, we're going to begin with what, what is called the main or the yearly tithe. There actually is more than one tithe that was related to the children of Israel. So the first one is Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. That's where it's found. Let me read that for you. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all of your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go, and there you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heath offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. We break in as Moses is instructing his people on various subjects, and it is a variety of subjects that we see uh, surrounding this. Uh, it's just kind of a, almost like a buckshot idea. You know, he's talking to them about, about uh, you know, false prophets that they're going to have and all different types of things. But, but he's, he's describing these to them, and he gives them specific instructions regarding tithes, okay? Um, but there's also, as you can see, a number of other types of offerings that are given there. It's a list of multiple types of offerings, but tithes is one of them. And I just wanted to highlight this place that he's talking about. They're not there yet. In this time, they're still going to be traveling toward and going into the promised land at some point. And so as he's giving them the law and he's talking to them about these things, he's saying that place is coming. When that place is designated, that is when and where you give all of these things that I just explained to you, okay? So that's just the context I want us to understand here. And then in Leviticus chapter 27, a couple of verses there, verses 30 and 32 say this, And all the tithe of the land gets a little more specific, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And concerning the tithe of the herd of the flock, of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. So the Israelites were to give 10% of their harvested crops from the fields and from the trees. They were also to tithe on their herds and flocks. And that, that idea of passing under the rod, just to explain that very briefly, the young livestock would be herded into some type of an enclosure. Uh, not uncommon for us to do something like that today, right? And then they would pass through a narrow point. 
And as they passed through this narrow point, there was someone who held a shepherd's rod. Just that simple, just their staff. And as they passed by, they would tap every tenth animal. Now, that could be possibly something that was um, uh, coated with something so that the animals could be identified. Or there was somebody who was you know, at the other end of the chute, so to speak, that kept track of the ones and they pulled those off to the side. But the, that tenth was then taken and that was an offering to the Lord. And ultimately, we need to understand that the tithe was the Lord's. It was his. It wasn't just something that they gave somewhere, some, you know, direction. It wasn't, it wasn't to people or whatever. It was considered to be the Lord's. Along with that, it did support the tribe of Levi. A tenth of the tithe of grain, sheep, cattle were given to the priesthood as well. So you had these tithes that were given to the Lord. Part of their purpose was to take care of the tribe of Levi because they did not have a place of their own. And then those active priests were then given a tenth of the tenth. All right. So that's how all that worked. Then there was something called the festival tithe. The festival tithe, if you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14, we're going to read about that, starting in verse 22. And by the way, I'll just tell you, um, these, these are not extremely clear all the time. And there are opinions about these things uh, regarding, you know, what covered what and, and, you know, were there really all these separate tithes and you know, all the different things that we can say. And I've tried to land in an intelligent fashion with this, but I also don't want to make too big of a deal out of it. I just want us to get the principles that are here. Um, but in chapter 14, starting in verse 22, it says this, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain, and the field, and the field produces year by year. And you shall eat from the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. So that's that same idea of that future place, right? The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstlings of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for the oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice you and your household. And you shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of, of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So we're going to break this down just a little bit and remind ourselves of what we just read in verses 22 and 23. We see that there was a tithe of the increase of their grain and, and it was the grain and the new wine of the firstborn of your herds and of your flocks. They were to reserve 10% of what uh, they eat and what they had 
uh, and eat of what they had reserved while celebrating the various feasts. What this was is designed to be a, 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 a tithe where they banked what they needed in order to be able to celebrate the things. Of, think, think about this. And I meant to say things of the Lord. Think about this. They're going to have this big feast. And you've done nothing to prepare, prepare for this feast all year. And then all of a sudden, you need to come up with what you need to go on the feast. It's kind of like saying, hey, we're going to go on vacation. Like right now, we have no money to go on vacation. We have no resources for it. We haven't planned for it, but we're going to go. Okay? So God, really in, in a gracious way, said, I'm going to have you set this aside. Now, what's interesting is offering the firstborn was a different offering from the tithe, okay, from this particular tithe. So part of the festival tithe was set aside, was set aside the resources to celebrate the giving of the firstborn animals because that was one of the reasons why they went to go, which eventually was going to be the, te- the, the temple, correct? So as they went to the temple to celebrate then what they were going to do is they were going to take what they had with them, what they had farmed, that was going to sustain them. They were going to celebrate with that, but then they were also going to celebrate by giving the animals to the Lord that they had set aside. And so this was all designed to get them to where they needed to be and to sustain them while they were there so that they could take the time to celebrate the different feasts of the Lord. Now, again, these instructions were given to the people prior to them being able to do it. This was the law. Uh, It doesn't mean that they didn't make sacrifices, but what it means is these particular ones, they didn't have any land. And then when they didn't go into the land and they were wandering for 40 years, they they didn't have anything. God provided for them, but it was for those future generations. And then there was something called the benevolence tithe. We see this at the, at the end of, of the uh, uh, chapter, uh, the, the part of the scriptures that we read. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce. And out, and out of that year, store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are with you within your gates. Now I wanted to pause there a minute. Notice that the place has changed. The other two tithes were to be given at the place designated by God, which again, we understand later on was the tabernacle and the temple when it had its location in the promised land. This is within your gates. In other words, within your your own household. And so this tithe, tithe was collected every third year, and it was to support the Levites who did not have their own land because of their service to the Lord. And it was also for the stranger, the fatherless, and for the widow, for those who did not have enough themselves. I don't know what this is exactly called, but I called it the, the benevolence tithe, as, as I entitled it. And so as we consider this, um, this was done every three years, and I did just a little bit of research. I mean, I'm not, you know. But my understanding is, and we know this even from the time of Joseph, that grain stored properly can last many years. Uh, we know that some of the grain that Joseph stored up lasted how long? Seven years, right? So many times, if you, if you I didn't, in my research, it said eight to ten years. 
grain, you know, raw grain properly stored can last that long. All right? And so three years was not a stretch, but it was there. And it was there to be shared with and even, even uh, participated in, right? You, you could have a meal with those who did not have enough of their own. What a beautiful thing that God did to make sure that some, something was set aside for those who had need. I also wanted to, we talked about tithes and offerings. We're not going to go deep into all the different offerings uh, and the sacrifices that, that Israel made, but there is the offering of the tabernacle, or the offering for the tabernacle. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Exodus 34, verses 4 and 5, and then verse 21. There's a lot more that's in there, but look at this. And we're going way back here now to where they were beginning this whole process, where, where you know, they become this chosen people of God, and now God is explaining to them, Okay, we need to build the tabernacle. It's, it's beautiful as far as what's described here. All the different things, everything from gold and silver to, to material, all these different things. But it says, And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. And as you can see there, I put down, there's a long list of items. Okay. <laughs> And then it says, Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. So everything that was involved in the worship of God at the tabernacle, including the tabernacle itself, and, and the curtains that were around it, everything, the people gave toward it. All right? This was a special offering that they, that they had. So as we kind of think about this, these three tithes represented about really 20%, some say more, of a person's yearly income in relation to the, the um, grain, the fruit trees, the fruiting trees, because that could be olives as well, uh, and to their livestock. So that's the picture that we have of the Old Testament. Now, the next one that I had there, and I'm just going to tell you, it became irrelevant in, in the study just because of some other things. There's not a lot in there. The Gospels do not give us instruction, per se, about tithes and offerings. Jesus mostly just says, you're doing it wrong. Okay, So, so just scratch this one, but I knew somebody's going to be like, hey, wait a minute, where's B? Right? Or where's C? So there it is. Okay, It's the Gospels, but we're skipping it. All right? So then we need to look at the New Testament. And, and that's what I was talking about beyond the Gospels. So we understand, we've talked about this when it comes to the kingdom of God, that we are now at a point we are no longer under the law. Okay? Christ has come. He's brought the new covenant. We, we have this new promise, this new agreement with God that's one-sided uh, um, uh, entity that we have here. He's fulfilled all of the Old Testament all of the different things that, that the Mosaic law required, all the prophecies, all those things. And now we come to, to here where, where we're no longer under the law. So what is our giving for? There's, three, there's several things that the scriptures tell us that our giving is for in the New Testament. The first one is the support of elders, the support of elders. And I just use that term uh, overseers used at times and things like that. But anyway, 
Galatians 6, 6 says, Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. That share with him in all good things is support. All right? 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Uh, no ox jokes, by the way. Okay? And the laborer is worthy of his wages. This, this double honor refers to both respect for the office and financial compensation. Okay, that's just what that means there. And then going to 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 13, it says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Uh, just simply put, Paul is saying that, you know, he's going back to what they were still practicing in Judaism. Uh, those who were working in the temple, they lived by what was given to the temple. All right. So Paul is concluding his argument that he has certain rights as an apostle in this passage, but he's chosen to forego them. And he ends with a comparison that we see here. And so the gospel preacher, so to speak, derives his living from the gospel. Now, you might pause here and say to me, weren't you just talking about greedy pastors a few minutes ago? <laughs> Why are you talking about this? <laughs> well, I have, do have a few reasons that I think I can give you. First, there are those who associate supporting the pastor with supporting the church. And, and I think we can make that um, correlation when it comes to uh, the, the, the temple. The temple needed to be supported, but those who ministered in the temple were also supported by it, all right? Um, I, I, you know, it's a different economy today. It's a different way of doing things. Back then, you had house churches, and there might have been some expense that they shared or whatever, but it's different today. We come and we meet at a central place. This place needs to be supported, correct? And so that's kind of what I wanted to get across also. So the second point is, this is what Scripture says about giving. I'm not going to sidestep it just because it's a little uncomfortable to be talking about. And third, we will eventually call another pastor. And it's good to keep these instructions in mind. All right? So there is, there is a, uh, some instruction here about how we consider the support of the elders. All right? And then we are to support the poor. Now, this is very similar to what we saw in the Old Testament, right? Old Testament, they were to do that as well. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7 says this, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly on necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Philippians, I'm sorry, uh, They specifically were supporting the Jews who had a need, a deep need. Um, we're talking Jewish Christians. Uh, it was a very bad time uh, in Judea, and so they were supporting them because they were, um, they were destitute. It's absolutely destitute. But it's interesting, Galatians 6.10 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of God. Okay. Now, doing good to all, that can be any number of things. But at times, it is a financial matter. It is a giving type of thing. And I just wanted us to understand 
that when we're talking about our own resources, our personal resources, this can be a ministry to another person, to another family, whatever it might be. But we are to specifically consider the needs of those within the church, within the household of God. Another thing that we see in the New Testament is the support for missions. And this is what I misspoke. I hit my notes wrong there. It says, For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities, not that I speak, seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So he's talking to the Philippians. What he's saying is, hey, thank you for your support, right? You, you helped me when nobody else would. And I think that he obviously really appreciated that. And then he says to the Roman church, as he writes to them, Romans 15, 24, he says this, Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So what's he saying? I'm expecting you to help me to, con- to continue my ministry, to continue my, my, my desire to bring the gospel to Spain. There's more to be said about this, but, but I really believe that as we, as we consider the fact that, okay, we, we need to support the function of the church, we need to support the poor, and we need to support missions, those are some very important reasons why we give. It's, it's what the structure of giving in the New Testament is about. It does mirror to a degree the Old Testament, but not exactly the same. Okay, that's, that's kind of the brass tacks of it, you know, the factual things, but what I want to do now is get into the heart of giving. Because really, that's the most important thing. The heart of giving. So as we kind of leave the facts behind a little bit, it's not like we're not going to see any of those. But what I want to start off with is the kind of heart that we shouldn't have. And folks, I just want to brace you. This is, this is a, a rough passage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's worth stopping and saying, okay, how are we not to give? Meaning from a, a heart attitude. Where are we not supposed to be? Micah chapter 1. Micah, uh, if you read Micah, I mean, it's one of those, you know, uh, boy, the pastor must have been angry this morning type of (laughs) But this prophet, I mean, he is is hitting the people hard. And by the way, he should have. Okay? They were in deep error. But Micah 1, beginning in verse 6, it says this. Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field. Places for planting a vineyard I will pour down her stones into the valley and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned to the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate. For, her, for she gathered it from the pay of the harlot. And, and Do I have the right verse here? Yeah, I do. Uh, and they shall return to pay for the harlot. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing for the jackals and a mourning for the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Aphra. Roll yourself in the dust. Pass by in the naked shame, you inhabitant of Shaphir. The inhabitants of Zanon does not go out, but... Beth Ezel mourns, its place to stand is taken away from you. 
For the inhabitant of Meroth pined for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. She has... She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressors of Israel uh, were found in you. I don't think I had the right passage here. I apologize about that. What's that? Malachi. Is it Malachi? Did I write the wrong one down? Oh, that's embarrassing. I'm sitting there reading. I'm just going to plow through, right? I mean, it's, it's got to be in here someplace. It didn't sound right from the beginning. I should have. Sorry about that, folks. Well, hey, there's one for. Anyway, all right. Let's start in Malachi 6. This looks a lot better here. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? Okay, somehow we have to erase everything we just read, right? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have I defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept your favor, you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now, entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while there is being done by your hands. What he, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors? Now, and by the way, just pause for a second. What he's saying is this. Is there somebody that would even just get the guts to just shut the doors of the temple? That's what he's saying here, to stop this, okay? So that you should not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among, among them, says the Lord of hosts. But you, prof- but you profane it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and makes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So just in a nutshell here, folks, and I apologize for having the wrong thing there, but as we consider this, um, I mean, look at how vile this is. What, what, they, what they basically said was, this is a bother. This is a burden. This, this giving of part of what God has given to me, I, I just... Can I, can I just get away with what I can, right? So no one's looking while I'm bringing this animal that's worthless to me, to God. It's not acceptable. Look at what he says. You know, let's, let's say you have this, this dignitary that's going to be coming. Here, here's a nice steak. Don't mind the smell. 
Right? That's pretty much what he's saying. So we have a situation where they're doing everything wrong for all the wrong reasons. And they're just trying to get by with what they can. That is not the mentality that we want to have when we're talking about giving to God. And look at what he says. I am a great God, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't it a shame that he has to remind his own people that he's a great God? But it's reflective in how they were worshiping him and how they were giving their sacrifices to him. As a matter of fact, I think there's even a bit of uh, sarcasm in the offering, right? The word offering that's here a couple of times. You know, this is your offering? So let's move on. Jesus encouraged sacrificial giving. That's a large passage on the screen, but let me work through this with you. Mark 12, starting in verse 41 through 44. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money in the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and drew in two mites, threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. This story is familiar to us. We've all heard it before. We've probably heard it in the context of a giving message, right? Jesus was observing how people put money in the treasury and whether it be something that was actually a part of the treasury or like a box type of thing, many, many uh, uh, describe it as almost like the end of a trumpet, you know, s- some type of a, of a, of a um, uh, trumpet-like device that was on the top of it where, you know, the money that funneled down then into a box or something like that. And so that's what, that's what these people were passing by and, and giving in. And so if you came with your coins, if you had a lot of coins, it'd be pretty obvious, you know, clang, 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 clang. You know, they, they would hear the money going in. He noticed the obviously wealthy were giving large amounts. But as we said, the widow gave all that she had. And the principle that Jesus was trying to get across had nothing to do with the amounts as much as it had to do with the devotion behind the gift. The wealthy should be generous, right? We know that, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. But think about it. This woman gave out of uh, gave all that she had. She she gave uh, over and above proportionately what the others had given. And so sometimes um, I, I understand that we can press this a little too hard and say, "See, that means that everybody should be you know giving until you know giving." Some people would say all you have, right? We can, we can go all the way to a cult leader that says, okay, let's just bring everything together here. It'll all be under my control because it's going to be better for you, right? That's the extreme. But, but we can't push this too far. It, it goes really back to the heart. This woman was like, I, I, want, I want it all for the Lord, right? That, that is what Jesus is telling us here. But as we think about the wealthy... The wealthy are supposed to be generous. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, 
nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. My brother Brian um, was uh, teaching Sunday school not that long ago and, and made the statement in that as he, as he talked about some different things. He said, you know what, really on, on the world scale, we're all rich. Now, I do think that there's still a American scale, okay? And we're going to talk, we're going to make some application of this a little bit later. So I, I just want to help us understand that most of us in this room, if we really were to compare what basic living is and what we have we have a lot and so this is simply saying if we have a lot then we need to consider how we are giving there's 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 something to be said about those who have a lot wanting to keep a lot right and and that's that's really what this is guarding against um this is not this is not you you can't find in here uh, this this um, uh, mandate that we shouldn't be rich or that somehow rich people are bad. Okay, that's not in here. But it's how we steward, how we manage what we have, the attitude that we have toward it and others based upon how God has blessed us. And so I'll leave it there. Now I read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 9 uh, back in our scripture reading, but I want to, to uh, take a look at this passage a little bit closer and look at several principles that we find here. The context that we have is that Paul gave um, the example of the Macedonian believers to teach the Corinthians about giving. The Macedonians had given, if you remember, he even warned them. He said, hey, look, you, you got to get something together because if the Macedonians hear about it, you promised, right? You promised you were going to give. And so if, if we come and it's like, oh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like when you, you make an appointment with somebody and they show up and you forgot, right? That never happens to anybody, right? Or they call and say, hey, where are you at? We're at the restaurant. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, we're on our way. <laughs> Don't lie. But anyway, you get the idea. The Macedonians had given out of their poverty. They had given sacrificially for the re relief efforts that we were talking about earlier the relief efforts of the Jewish Christians in Judea. So let's, again, look at a couple of sections here. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 5 through 8. I'm just going to read this for you, and then we're going to highlight different parts of it. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Now, let me, let me pause here just for a second. This is not Paul being slick and saying, hey, wink, wink, um, remember that uh, gift that you promised that you're really not going to do? I'm telling you this so that you'll actually do it. No, no, he's just saying you're not being mindful. I'm helping you to be mindful. He's not saying that, that they're, they're being disingenuous, all right? So then it goes on. But this I say, he, did I get that right? Yeah, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now, again, this is primarily to needy Christians. But I think that there are some principles here, as I mentioned, that we should be able to uh, derive some things from. So let's, let's look at the first one. The first one is to give deliberately. Prepare your generous gift beforehand, right? Think about it. Be ready. The next one is give generously. We read here that it's their generous gift. Be ready as a matter of generosity, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. This is a principle that I really believe is part of church giving, whether it be to the, the, um, the, the help of the church collectively or whether it be individual giving that we might see as a need in somebody else's life. That is to be generous. Also, and this kind of goes back a little bit to, uh, to Malachi. Got it right this time. Uh, don't give unwillingly or because you feel obligated, right? He talks about a grudging obligation. But if you reap sparingly, you're going to sow sparingly, right? Don't do it as if someone's twisting your arm. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why I chose to speak about giving today and not, you know, before maybe some future project we might have or any number of things where it's like, hey, folks, we really need you to give because. No. If, if we were to say just financially, do, do we need anyone to give more here today? The answer would be, well, look at the books. We don't need collectively as a body of believers anybody to give any more than the giving right now in order to pay the bills. But that's not the criteria. That's not the criteria. So we are to give generously. That, that is where our attitude should be. Also, we are to give purposefully. Give as he purposes in his heart. We can't be any more clear than that, right? So a person is to say, well, you know what? I want to purposefully give this amount and or in this way. That's going to require some thinking through, right? And we'll, again, we'll get into that when we get to the application and just a little bit later. Then also give cheerfully. Some have translated this give hilariously. I'm, I'm not sure if it goes to that extreme, but the idea is way different than what we saw in Malachi. Right? Where it's like, oh, it's, I'm, I'm just so tired of doing this. Oh, I'm so weary of giving to you. Oh, it's such a bother. I'm just going to tell you folks straight up. When I was a young person, it was very easy for me to see our household and the household of our next door neighbors. My parents and their parents made roughly the same amount of money. Our lifestyle was different than theirs. And our lifestyle was different because my parents gave to the church. And they did it deliberately and cheerfully. But here's the other thing that's really cool that I want to see here. It's really important. Give anticipating more opportunities for good works. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you, having 
always having all sufficiency in all things. Do you think that Paul's trying to make a point? <laughs> right? May have an abundance for every good work. So you know how people say, hey, if you give, right, God's going to give to you. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. Man, you're going to get more back. If you send my ministry $50, he's going to give you $5,000. Right? You, you, you've heard him. So here's the point of all of this. He's not saying uh, sow bountifully so that you can reap bountifully, period. He's saying sow bountifully so that you can reap bountifully so that you can sow some more. <laughs> wow. Well, that, that clarifies things, doesn't it? We will have more opportunities if God so chooses to bless us in that way. Certainly, it's every good work, not just monetary good works. Okay, so we need to understand that. But giving generously, sowing bountifully, means that God is going to give us more opportunities to be able to serve him. Man. So we should give anticipating opportunities, more opportunities for good works. Now, what does this all bring us to? And folks, I, I'm, I'm just telling you, again, th th these are not easy things to say because it, it, it does sometimes, I mean, you can't help it. You know, I, I derive a salary from what I'm talking to you about. Okay, it's just kind of weird, all right? But I'm just being honest. But as we go to this conclusionary part here, I, I, want, us to, I want us to see some of the different ways that, that we can and should apply this. So, so let's, let's just think through some things. The pattern is for both the collection to take place through the church and to give direct help to fellow believers in need. If you notice, there were several times when they were to bring their offering or, or, or direct it toward the church, okay? So, so that's, that's a pattern that we see in the scriptures, but there's also that same parallel pattern of giving to individuals as we see need, all right? Jesus even talked about that, right? Where he talked about giving to the poor. He says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, or vice versa, I can't remember, but you get the idea. In other words, give it in such a way that you're just giving it. No strings attached, anything like that, when you see a need. What so many people want to know is, does the tithe, the offering of 10% of my income, apply today? Well, I want to look at some practical factors here. First, there is more than one Old Testament tithe, so the figure should be 20%. I know some of you are like, oh man, here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> this was part of the national covenant God made with his children Israel. God's purpose for the main tithe was to support the Levites and the temple priest. That's not relevant today. I mean, yeah, you can talk about the pastor. You can talk about any staff that we might have. But, but we're, we're not supporting this, this whole tribe of people that don't have their own inheritance that don't have their own place to live all right and there is no longer a need to set aside a tenth of our resources to facilitate the celebration of feasts now in reality you could say well 
that's the same thing as us gathering together here. And yeah, you, you, you could look at that. But I'm just saying from the law standpoint. Also, we are explicitly told the New Testament, as we've already said, that we are free from the law. Okay? Another thing that you won't find, which is interesting, is there's no record of a tithe on commerce. For example, if you made uh, sandals or jars and sold them, there was no command to tithe on those earnings. However, a large majority of people would have some type of produce, right? They would have had a, a large garden. They would have had uh, may, maybe a grove of olives or any number of things, and they still would have tithed from that. But the tithe was based upon what you were getting from the land or what you were getting from livestock. There's nothing ever said about the other aspects. Well, again, it was how they did things. There is no direct or implied command in the New Testament to tithe. There isn't one. There are comments about tithing, but there's no command to tithe in relation to the church. So what's the point? We cannot select one arbitrary element of the law and artificially require the Christian to conform to it. Okay? You don't have to sacrifice animals today, but you've got to tithe. Am I wrong? If we don't see it explicitly um, ascribed to us in the New Testament, in other words, if there isn't a follow-up that says, this is what you're supposed to do, then we can't take it from the Old Testament and apply it to the Christian. So all this means that we can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that we are free to give as little as possible to the Lord. Right? <laughs> that can be almost what we think sometimes. And I, I'm not saying anybody in this room had said other church down the road. But anyway. <laughs> what I just said to you is not either the letter or the spirit of how the Lord instructs us to give. All right? That is not what we studied today. So with all that said, just like many, many other Old Testament principles, I do believe that giving 10% of what Deuteronomy 14.22 calls our increase is a reasonable amount to consider. I do believe that. I mean, the principle is still there. So that's that proverbial don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But it's not a law. It just so happens that it worked and there, there's something to be said about it. There's a lot said about it until you get to the New Testament. The New Testament simply says, what? We described that heart for giving, a purposeful, generous, cheerful type of giving. A type of giving that is others-directed, whether it be the devotion to the Lord or our compassion for others. That's the type of giving that we're required to do that we're commanded to do in the New Testament. Jesus noted a self-sacrificial giving. We talked about that as well. We also saw that it is a purposeful type of giving. Now, I want to spend some time because this is where I think we, we, we miss things. This is where I think that we, we can struggle in how we live out this command of giving. No matter what the situation that we might be able to give in, whether it be giving regularly to the church or 
a need that might arise in someone's life, we might make it either very difficult or impossible to give, to meet that need if we don't put ourselves in a position to give, if we don't have a plan. Let that sink in for a minute, folks. If I don't have any room in my budget, and I put that in air quotes because sometimes many of us don't have one, we don't even have a plan with our own personal finances, then how do I make sure that I am deliberately, purposefully giving to the Lord? If all of my money is accounted for before I even start my month, then when someone does have a need, how am I able to meet it? I can't. So the first thing is, is that we've got to be careful not to spend ourselves into a box to where we, we don't have any room to give. Now, of course, there's a precursor to that, which is, as I said, having to consider that we should be giving anyway, right? And based upon what we have learned, giving of ourselves is both important to God and pleasing to God. It's, it's, it's a matter of being obedient, if we're not giving as described in our study, then we need to adjust our hearts and our lifestyle to line up with the Word of God. It's just that simple. As we think about this, though, I want us to go back to, to the principles that we saw in the passage that we looked at. There is a purpose behind all of this. And whether we're talking about people who are rich or not, the purpose behind it is this, is that God has more to give us as a result. Okay? It may or may not be monetary, but he has more to give us as a result. And that passage said that there were eternal implications for giving with the right heart attitude, for giving in the right way. So, folks, I, I wanna, I'm challenging you, and, and, I, and, I, and I can feel it. I can feel it out there, right? I'm challenging you, not because we're in a place of need, not because um, we've got some big project on the horizon, but simply because God says this is how we're to give. If we are reluctant in our giving, if we're even, oh man, I could be doing so much, so many other things with that, right? You know, I mentioned the difference between our household and our neighbor's household. Um, they just simply had more stuff, sometimes nicer stuff. And I'm telling you, as a young person, even at a given point, as a young Christian person, there were times when it was like, well, it looks pretty nice, right? Well, how do I get that? I take from God. Wow. I would like us to consider one more practical area, and it's this. What, and, I, and like I say, I, I know this is, not necessarily easy to talk about and easy to take, but we, we've given it to you, okay? But let's, let's add, a little, add a little sugar to the cod liver oil. <laughs> I 
I would like us to consider this again. Very important practical area. What might we be able to do as a church if we all gave as God described in our study? You see, because collectively, I believe there's still that principle that comes, which is, man, if we give as, as God has enabled us and we put that together as a body of believers, that's how we operate today, right? Because there's nobody, like, when, when it's over, you guys aren't all going to walk out and say, that one, that was like a seven today, Pastor Scott. So here, here I'm going to slip you some money, right? You, you did okay, right? That's not how it goes. Or, hey, um, will you pray a little more for me this week, right? Because I need it. And then you slip me. It, by the way, that's not unusual in other places, but you get what I'm trying to say. That's, that's not how it works. We collectively come together, and then we collectively, as a body of believers, we pass a budget. We determine where our money needs to go. And there's some necessities. Heating and air conditioning and all those other different things, right? The lights need to be on when we come in. On now we can go with that. And yes, you allow me to be able to set time aside, not have another occupation, so that I can do what I'm doing right now and other things. Thank you. you know, I appreciate it very much. But here's the point. What else could we be doing? How could we reach in our community? Because we can do the same thing. We can look at our budget. We can say, oh, look at this great thing we can be involved in. And then we do the proverbial reach down our pockets and pull them out and say, ah, but there's no budget for that. There's no money for that. Ah, it'd be a wonderful thing to do. We can't. Is it possibly? Because collectively... We're missing the opportunity. And Pastor Scott, you said that we're doing fine. That's not the criteria. The criteria is you personally, between you and God. And so what I want to encourage you to do is consider the possibilities. Consider what we could do. Because I'm just going to tell you, we, we have a faithful people. We have people that reach out. We have, we have ideas about how we can reach into our community. And I'm not saying that there isn't money that could be there. But I'm simply saying all of that is irrelevant. One other quick thing. Sorry, add this on real quick. We can't look at our budget or how our budget has been spent or is being spent or whatever and say, well, I'm just going to pull this back because... I don't like, I didn't like that last project that we did. Right? It, it, it's not about what we want. It's about what is God's. We're not like other groups. We're not going to come to your house and say, okay, um, let's, let's schedule your payments. Right? There are other groups that do it. I'm so glad we don't. <laughs> But I'm simply saying this. Come to God purposefully, generously, and cheerfully. Amen. I'm just telling you folks straight. I could have, I, I've got them. I could have read all kinds of illustrations about how people went out in faith and how God blessed them. Um, and Rightfully so. Good, good illustrations. I, I could give you illustrations uh, about how, you know, this says this and this happened and blah, 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 and, and just 
hammer you with all kinds of illustrations on what could be, what should be, and all those other different things. I, I, I don't want to do that. I want God's word to speak to you. That's it. I want the Holy Spirit to speak through his word and have you say, boy, you know what? I want to reassess what's coming in the front door and what's going out the back door. And I want to ask myself, or maybe even as a family, if we get together, what, what should the Lord's be? And get excited about how he's going to use what you give in your own life and in the life of others. Some people you will never meet. We have the privilege of giving to a, a couple of organizations where we're, we're, we're giving to young people who have no one else. I mean, that, that's kind of the extreme that we're talking about. I mean, there's not really a lot of poor around us, right? But boy, we, we've taken that mission and, and when we are giving to some people who are destitute without our help. Again, we have opportunities potentially within our community. There's, there's a lot of things that we can do and do more of. So let's just see how God wants to bless. Let's see how God blesses as he promised through our obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just consider some purposeful words from your word today, it is a very personal topic. But Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have. Each individual coming before you, we have a fancy word we call, a phrase we call, individual soul liberty. Simply meaning that every believer has the freedom to exercise their faith as they see fit. Certainly within the bounds of Scripture, but how they give, how I give, is ultimately between me and you. And so I pray, Lord, that as we exercise our freedom, that we will also exercise our obedience and our love for you, our devotion to you, and that it be reflective in what and how we give, not just slipping it in the box in the back, but also seeing the needs that are around us. Lord, I thank you that you haven't prescribed things down to the nth degree because it really is very, it's just how you're operating now. Where we respond in love, we respond in obedience, we respond to even the blessings that you've given to us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we'll be excited about the challenge of giving it back a portion of what you've given to us out of a deep love and appreciation for you and out of a compassionate heart for others. And as we mentioned before, out of the anticipation of what you're going to do with all of it. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.